Uh, they came home from college this past week, and uh, it's been a great joy to have them at home. It's for the first time in three years that both of them have been home, that we've been all together as a family. Last couple years, uh, they've been serving Christ in other lands, whether it's Mexico or Albania or Czech. They've just kind of missed each other. But this summer, they're together, and uh, we're all together. We're excited to have a, a happy family of seven again. And uh, really praying, Ivan and I are and have been, that we just might really enjoy our, our time uh, with Krissa and Asar because we know that it might be our last, our last summer together because you got jobs and, and internships and summer school and missions and maybe marriage thrown in there at some point. And, um, you know, just, just the lives of older kids, they get through college, you get out of college, just the world is opening to them and we don't know what's exactly going to happen to them. And so we're, we're really trying to, to treasure our time together with them. But Ivan and I know enough about kids coming back from college that it can be a time of, of great conflict. Um, in fact, conflict is often the result when kids come back from college because they're different. They've tasted a, a great measure of freedom. Um, they've matured. They have no one telling them when to go to bed and when to get up, SR. You need to be looking at me right now, right? Um, when to come home and, and what you have to do today or household chores to do. And so just reorienting college students coming back home is, is, is kind of hard. And, and some of those things in our, our families are reality of, of what to do, when to get up, and things we, we want them to do. Now, it's, it's not all on them. Because we've changed our family as well. We're different than when they left. When, when they left, we had five children, and now we have three children. And a, and a house of five is running differently than our home of seven used to. And these children are older than when they left. I mean, David's growing up like crazy, and so is Stephanie. And, and so they come back to some older kids who are doing different things and different responsibilities. We do things differently at home. And so they're not even coming back to the same. Now, there's a lot that's the same. Um, but there's a lot that is different as well. And like, like, for instance, okay, our three youngest have been used to their bathroom. And I'm telling you, within 24 hours, we hear these complaints, these kids coming downstairs, and the, the complaints of messy towels all over the place and man smell in the bathroom. I don't know exactly what that is, but that's, that's what it was. It was man smell is how they described it. Um, and when they came home, initially their rooms were a mess. And uh, so we had a family meeting, and uh, we tried to put forth ex- expectations. We wanted to lay out a little bit of our vision for this summer for them about the need for jobs and the need to save money and the, the need just to have come with a servant's attitude around the house so they might, might come to serve rather than to be served, that they might make their bed each morning and they might clean their room each morning and they might help out. And we explained that if if these consequences didn't happen, there'd be less money for college, there would be more conflict in the home, frustration for all, and less joy. And by God's grace, we are praying for a joy-filled home and happiness this this summer. And so we're praying for our children to enjoy their time at home. We're praying for us to enjoy our time home with our, our children with minimal conflict is what we're praying for. We're praying for servants' hearts all around because there's more dishes all of a sudden, there's more clothes it's conflict to see who can get the washer and the dryer at appropriate time. And, and our hope is that our children would know a, a home filled with love and grace. So far, things have, have gone well, and I, I'm, I'm glad to report that their rooms are clean. Well, mostly. 
mostly. Um, one room is clean, and the other one is, is relatively clean. Uh, I'm not going to say whose room is clean and who's struggling, but someone's laughing down here. And uh, I just, just Chris is sharing a room with, with Stephanie in the bunk bed, and uh, SR is thinking about sleeping some night in his hammock that he just, just put up. But again, I'm not incriminating anybody. I'm just saying that one is clean and one is, one is struggling. Well, as we come to our text this morning, it's exactly what we see. We see a family meeting to try to set forth expectations of what God is calling His people to do between God and the nation of Israel. And He's putting His expectations on the people. And the title of my message this morning is a, a family meeting. If you haven't done so, I invite you to open your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 26. We just have chapter 27 next week. I'm going to wrap up all the book of, of Leviticus. If you want to study ahead of time, you can look and try to figure out what this valuation is, what the valuations are. It's a difficult thing, and uh, I'll tell you my opinion next week um, as we review kind of the whole book. I'm going to use chapter 27 to review the whole book. And then, as I told you before, we're going in the book of First John next. Um, it's probably not right away, but... But at some point, maybe the end of summer, maybe midway through summer, I'm not sure. But here we got Leviticus 26, and we're going to see in this chapter, much like our family meeting, it's a similar to the message I, we said to our children. We, we told our children, if you listen to what we say, and if you have a heart of a servant, and you work hard at these things, you're going to be happy, we're going to have peace, you're going to go well in our household. But if you spurn our counsel and sleep in every morning and live like a slob, things won't go so well for us or anyone else in the home. And know this, there's always grace. There's lots of grace in our home. So if you find yourself on the wrong path, you simply want to turn around, just, just turn around, confess your sins, and say, sorry, I've not done this very well, and walk the right path. It's exactly the message that God brought to the nation of Israel. As you come into the land, be careful to do according to all that I say. And if you listen and heed my words, there will be abundant blessings. But if you refuse my counsel, then things will go poorly for you. But there's always room for repentance. It's the message. Now, as much as the message is the same, the, the circumstances are different. Rather than a family, we're talking about more of a nation. Rather than among peers, parents and children, and older children, uh, to God and the people of Israel. Rather than give and take, there was a whole lot of give and not a whole lot of take as God was dictating forth his instructions, what he wanted the nation of Israel to do as they prepared to enter the land of Canaan. Not much room for feedback. is a one-way conversation, but this is the family meeting that they had. And it's simply this. My first point is, if you obey. Let's begin by reading in verse 1. You shall not make idols for yourselves or erect an image or pillar, and you shall not set up a figured stone in your land to bow down to it. For I am the Lord your God, and shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you your rains in their season, and the land shall yield its increase, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing shall last until the time of the grape harvest, and the grape harvest shall last till the time of sowing. And you shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land securely. I will give you peace in the land, and you shall lie down, and none shall make you afraid. And I will remove harmful beasts from the land, and the sword shall not go through your land. 
You shall chase your enemies, and they shall fall before you by the sword. Five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall chase ten thousand, and your enemies will fall before you by the sword. I will turn to you and make you fruitful and multiply you and will confirm my covenant with you, and you shall eat old store, long kept, and you shall clear out the old to make room for the new. And I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. And I will walk among you, and will be your God, and you shall be my people. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, that you should not be their slaves. And I have broken the bars of your yoke, and made you walk erect. Now the crucial word in all this chapter is found right there in verse 3. It's the little word, if. It's a little word, it's a big word because it governs the whole chapter. Everything in the first 13 verses hinges on this word. In fact, Warren Wearsby in his commentary on this chapter entitled this chapter, the big word, comma, quote, if, end quote, is the big word here. If you walk, verse 3, if you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then, I'll summarize verses 4 and following, you can see the then there, then you will have abundant blessings. Now, the statutes and commandments here that he's talking about um, have direct reference to the book of Leviticus, obviously. To the first seven chapters that talk about sacrifice, to the Next three chapters that speak about priests, or chapters 11 through 15 to talk about ritual cleanliness, or chapters 17 through 25 that we've been looking at each week, just talking about walking with God. But, but the phraseology even here, if you walk in my statutes, observe my commandments and do them, it's not just Leviticus. In fact, when Moses wrote the Pentateuch, um, it was really all one book, the kind of segmented down. In, in fact, um, uh, the, the, the names, the Hebrew names for each of the books of the books of the Pentateuch start with the first letter of that book. And so, uh, like, uh, like Exodus says, uh, Shemot, I think it's like in the year. Leviticus, Vayikra, and he called, is what Leviticus is called. Bedevar uh, uh, is in the wilderness, is Numbers. It just, just speaks about just the, the first word. They're all together. And so certainly these commands speak about all of the chapters in Exodus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. All that preceded it and all that follows it. Everything that God commanded. And by, by implication, then it can go anything that God commanded. Whether He commanded it before this time or whether even He commanded it afterwards. It's just a, a call to walk in obedience. And the simple fact is this. That when God commands, His people are called to obey. It's as simple as that. If God commands, people are called to obey. Now, particularly here in verses 1 and 2, we see two commands. The first one is the second commandment. You shall make no idol for yourself, right? or erect an image or a pillar, and you shall not go up and set up a figured stone in your land to bow down to it, for I am the Lord your God. Don't make an idol. It's just a simple command that Israel struggled with. Don't, the second command we see here in verse 2 is a, is a reference to, this, to the fourth commandment, the Sabbath. But probably here it says Sabbaths, probably referring back to chapter 23 we looked at a few weeks ago. Talking about the, the festivals, the, the new moons and the, uh, the feasts that they had is probably what that's, that's talking about. But both of these commands particularly speak about, about worship about worshiping the one true God and how to worship. Worship Him through the 
feasts and festivals as he commanded Israel to worship in, in that way. And the reason in 1 and 2 are both the same. No, look at the end of each of those verses. For I am the Lord your God. I am Yahweh your God, is what he says. At the end of verse 2 he says, same thing, I am the Lord. Listen, when, when God tells us to do things, he says, do this because I am Yahweh. I'm the, your covenant-keeping God. I'm the one who is faithful to you. It comes back down to verse 13 where he he wraps this up. He says, I am the Lord your God. And remember me, I'm the one that brought you out of the land of Egypt. That you should not be their slaves. I'm the gracious one who carried you out. And remember, I'm for you, I'm not against you. Therefore, obey me. That's what he's saying. The Lord is the sovereign one with all authority. He's the gracious one who redeemed Israel. His words are to be followed. And I think the application really comes straight to us. See, when God commands, His people are called to obey. Anything less is unimaginable and incoherent. You remember when uh, Jesus asked the multitudes? He says, the multitudes of people following Him, He says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, but you do not do what I say? Luke six forty six. It makes no sense at all to call Jesus Lord... And then not to follow him. Because to call someone Lord is to recognize he's a sovereign one in your life and to follow him. Doesn't make any sense not to. This is the reality of many in our land today, though. Many in our land today claim to follow Christ, claim to be born again, even, and yet aren't doing what he's saying. They're following their own ways. But when God commands. His people are called to obey. If Jesus is Lord, end of argument. He has to be obeyed. Anything less is a farce. Any profession is meaningless. Any profession makes no sense if it's not followed up by obedience. And I just say, is that your heart? Is your heart to obey the Lord? Whatever He says, it's what I'll do. When He commands, you obey. And the good news here today is this, verses 4 through 13. If you obey, blessings will come your way, right? Notice the then there in verse 4. Then, all these things. And I trust as as I read that for you, you just heard these blessings just compound over and over and over and over again. And in these 10 verses, we have 25 promises of blessing. I went through here, I counted them, I numbered them. 25. He says, verse 4, I'll give you rains. Your yield shall increase. Your trees shall bear forth fruit. Verse 5, your threshing is going to last to the grape harvest. And your grape harvest is going to last until the time for sowing again. You're going to have enough food the whole time is what he's saying. He said, I'm giving you peace in the land, verse 6. You'll lie down without any fear. I'm going to keep the harmful beasts away from you. The sword shall not go through your land. I'm going to give you peace. Verse 7, you're going to chase your enemies. Your enemies are going to fall before you. Verse 8, five will chase a hundred, and a hundred shall chase ten thousand. Your enemies are going to fall before you. I'm going to make you dominant people here in the land. Verse 9, I will turn to you. I'll make you fruitful. I'll multiply you. I'll confirm my covenant with you. Verse 10, you're going to eat the old. The old is going to stay good. It's not going to rot. You're going to eat that until the new comes in, and you're going to have so much, you've got to push the old out in order to get the new. Verse 11, I will dwell among you. My soul shall not abhor you. 
Verse 12, I will walk among you. I will be your God. You should be my people. That's, that language comes up again in Revelation. Revelation 21 about the, the glory of the new heavens and the new earth, the Jerusalem. The dwelling of God has come to be among men. And God has said, I will be your God and you shall be my people. This is ultimate where it's going. It's what he promises here for Israel. Twenty-five blessings are just kind intention, the favor of God upon the people of God. Here's another simple fact. Is this, when God's people obey, blessings come from the Lord. When God's people obey, blessings come. We see here with Israel, 25 particular blessings come. Now, when it comes to us, there are some of these blessings that, that quite frankly, aren't, aren't promised. We haven't been promised military victory in battle. Right? Uh, the harvest isn't necessarily promised to us. We're not going to strike down these people. There are a lot of these that you can take and, and apply to us. But I think throughout Scripture, you can just see and understand just the blessings of God come upon the people of God when they obey. I mean, that, this, this principle, by the way, is just, is, is just all over Scripture. It's just all over. That, that, right? Those who submit themselves to the Lord, those who obey Him, are blessed of God. God shines His, His favor upon them. And you can, you can just think about, think about the people throughout church history. Is that not the case? Whether it's Abraham, Moses, Joshua, David, Hezekiah, Josiah. You read about these men, and they were righteous men. It's not that they were sinless, but they were righteous and for the most part, they knew the favor of God upon their lives. They were righteous in the sense they had a heart for God. They would walk in His ways. As a result, they knew God's blessing in their lives. And I just say, this is, this is how it is. I mean, this, this, isn't this the, the theme of Proverbs? Those who fear the Lord walk in a righteous way, know the blessing of God. And those who spurn the Lord, hate the Lord, refuse the Lord, walk in their sin... Face the consequences. I, I mean, just, just even, even think about this. I got some Proverbs 8, uh, 11, verse 8. The righteous is delivered from trouble. Proverbs 11, verse 19. Whoever is steadfast in righteousness will live. Proverbs 12, 21. No ill befalls the righteous. Proverbs 13, 25. The righteous has enough to satisfy his appetite. I just pulled four of dozens of verses I could about the righteous and the blessings that come. Now, again, remember Proverbs. Proverbs are not a promises. Proverbs are just general rules. People generally who are, generally who are righteous will receive blessings. Uh, Proverbs 16, verse 7, When a man's ways please the Lord, even his enemies are made to be at peace with him. Right? And all you need to do is just simply open your eyes and you'll see that so many times in Scripture. You follow the Lord, the blessings will come. Uh, this past week, Grandma and Grandpa have been with us. Grandma and Grandpa Ray have been with us to see some plays and athletic events of our, of our kids. And on several nights, David has spent the night with them. And uh, the report has come back, thankfully, that David has done well. He's been obedient. Lola, you pulled me aside and says, Steve, I just want to let you know that David has been a delight that he's been obeying everything, he's really been submissive, and I'm like, yes, good job. So I went over to David, and I said, hey, do you know what Grandma Lola told me? She said that you've been obedient. That's very good. That makes me happy. That's going to help you, make you happy. Keep it up. He's going to spend the night there tonight, Lord willing. And so he'll, hopefully he'll, he'll see that. And, and he's happy, 
And, and, and when I told him that, his big smile on his face. I'm happy as a parent because that's, that's really the, the way it works, right? Is in the lives of your children, they are happy when they obey and you are happy when they obey. It's not a power struggle. It's just you know it's going to go well with them. I, I've quoted this often. Parents, when parenting your children, think about this. I have no greater joy than this to hear of my children walk in truth. So children walk in the truth when they are delightfully obedient to Him. God delights to pour out His blessing upon them. I contend that the message of the New Testament is the same. Isn't it what Jesus said, right? Blessed are the pure in heart. Right? Those who are righteous, for they shall see God. They'll have the blessing of seeing God. Or, or blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. You hunger and thirst for righteousness, God's going to satisfy you. Paul promised encouragement in Christ and comfort and love for those who follow the Lord. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God who are called according to His purpose. And if all things are working out for the good in their lives, then the hand of blessing is upon God's life, directing it. None is clearer maybe than 1 Peter 3, 8 and 9. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil, reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for this, for to this you are called that you may obtain a blessing. As you bless others, blessings will come your way. Now, that's the pattern. That's not to say this is always the case, right? Because a believer's life, submissive to the Lord, will not always be filled with just wonderful things. You will be hated. If you're walking rightly with Christ, you will be persecuted. But yet, even there's a sense, even though you're persecuted, yet even enemies will be made at peace with you. There's a, something going on there. You will go through tribulation, Jesus said. In this world, you will have tribulation. But even through that tribulation, there's the blessing of be of good cheer because I've overcome the world. The, the, the promise of being persecuted is that God will testify on your behalf that you are His. And in the norm, though, righteous blessing comes upon righteous people. You show me ten faithful followers of Christ and you show me ten pagans who have no fear of God in their lives. And I'll show you blessings upon these nine of them that's exceeding the sinner's life, those following their own lusts. Because, listen, lusts lead to sin, and sin leads to death, and sin leads to trouble and trial and strife and hardship. And I just say those who are, who are in their sin will just get deeper into sin. Their lives will be difficult because God makes it hard in general. That's the message here. Because their sin leads into trouble, and that's what God promised Israel. If you don't walk this path of blessing, of obedience, and you choose to walk this path of disobedience, well, let's see what happens. And if you obey all these wonderful things, and if you disobey Israel, here's what I'm going to do. Curses will come in your life. That's what God commanded, right? And as I read verses 14 and following, I want you to notice the ifs and the thens. Right? If you're disobedient, then here comes the curse. If you're disobedient, here comes the curse. They come up all over the place. Verse 14. If you write in your Bibles, ifs and thens would be good to circle this point. Verse 14. But if you will not listen to me and will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes and if your soul abhors my rules so that you will not do any of my commandments but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will visit you with panic, 
with wasting disease and fever that consume the eyes and make the heart ache. And you shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. And I will set my face against you, and you shall be struck down before your enemies. Those who hate you shall rule over you, and you shall flee when no one pursues you. Bottom line, right? If you disobey, God says, I will curse you. You have panic in your life. I'm not sure if that's like a panic attack or whether it's fear. There's a, there's a lot here like in verse 16 about uh, no one's pursuing you, yet you're scared. Paranoid people, right, probably comes oftentimes because they're not trusting and resting in the Lord who watches over everybody. They have disease, verse 16. It talks about having a fever. God's face will be against you, and that's the last thing you want. Verse 17, you'll be struck down. Others will rule over you. You'll, you'll have fear in your life. This is almost like exactly contrasted, exactly. Whereas on the other hand, you'll have peace, you'll have safety. You're going to conquer. Instead, they're going to be conquering you. Now, obviously, these, these are just in general because it's not like everybody who disobeys God is, has got a fever. But in general, God says, I'm going to bring these wasting diseases upon you. And certainly for Israel, that was, that was the case. Seven curses in verses 16 and 17, directly applicable to Israel, but we can see the, uh, the coming result to us as well. Right? When people rebel, curses come from the Lord. It's because the way of sin is hard, and God opposes your sin. He'll make it hard on you. In fact, He'll increase it. He'll increase it. Look at... Um, all right, continuing on, verse 18. And if, in spite of this, you will not listen to me, then here comes more, I will discipline you again sevenfold for your sins. And I will break the pride of your power. <clears throat> I'll make the heavens like iron and your earth like bronze. And your strength shall be spent in vain. And your land shall not yield its increase. And the trees of a land shall not yield your fruit. Here it is. God promises a sevenfold Increase So seven times response for your sin. I think it's seven times worse than the panic and disease and fever and fear. I think God promised their livelihoods, going to address their crops. The heavens and the earth are going to be like hard metals. The labors of their field are going to bear forth little fruit. So it's talking about having a scant harvest. It's coming for Israel. And again, if, if you're righteous, the blessings come. And if you're wicked, the, the curses come. Remember when I quoted those Proverbs? I only quoted half of the proverb. Let me continue on the other so you see this principle about... When people rebel, the curse comes. Proverbs 8, 11 verse 8, The righteous is delivered from trouble, and the wicked walks into it instead. Proverbs eleven nineteen: Whoever is steadfast in righteousness will live, but he who pursues evil will die. Proverbs twelve twenty one: No ill befalls the righteous, but the wicked are filled with trouble. Proverbs 13.25, the righteous has enough to satisfy his appetite, but the belly of the wicked suffers want. Some is just how God has made life. Is it that the righteous path yields, yields blessing, and the wicked path yields trial and hardship and distress and want and famine? But it gets worse. <clears throat> Verse 21. And if you walk contrary to me and will not listen to me, I will continue striking you sevenfold for your sins. And I will let loose the wild beasts against you, which, which shall bereave you of your children and destroy your livestock and make you few in numbers so that your roads shall be 
deserted. Again, we see the sevenfold increase, retribution for sins. It's not merely disease or famine. It's destruction. Remember in the first part of the blessings where he says, I'm going to protect you from the wild beasts, verse 6? Now he says these beasts are going to come and they're going to kill your children, right? So you, your children are out, they're playing about, and a lion comes up is going to eat your child when you disobey. That's the promise here to Israel. It just continues to get worse. Look at verse 23. And if by this discipline you are not turned to me, but walk contrary to me, then, there's the if, there's the then, then I will walk contrary to you, and I myself will strike you sevenfold, there it is again, for your sins. And I'll bring a sword upon you that shall execute vengeance for the covenant. And if you gather your sit within your cities, I will send pestilence among you, and you shall be delivered into the hand of the enemy. When I break your supply of bread, ten women shall bake your bread in a single oven and shall dole out your bread again by weight, and you shall eat and not be satisfied. So you see again the... Nations are going to come and rule over you. And if you hole up in the city, it's going to bring a pestilence there. So you're going to be sick, and so you're going to die of sickness. So you're going to die in war, you're going to die of sickness. You're going to be given into the hands of your enemies, you're going to starve. And it works like this, right? The more you continue in your sin, the more the curses come. And I, I think that's entirely true of us today, right? That if you rebel... God says, you'll be cursed. And if you continue, you'll be cursed. And if you continue, you'll be cursed some more. And if you continue, you'll be cursed even more. And if you continue, you'll be cursed much more. I'm going to say this is true of life. Big sins never just happen. Big sins happen because little sins happen and they kind of got away with it or the punishment was so bad or God's discipline upon them. They just, and then another little sin and then a bigger 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 sin and then a, then a big sin. That's how sins always happen. And oftentimes those, those sins happen contrary to the disciplining hand of God. In, in Revelation chapter 16, when we see the, the bowls being poured out upon the, upon the earth, um, the bowls of God's wrath, there are seven of these, and listen to the fourth one. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire, and they were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over the plagues, and did not repent so as to give him glory. So even though they saw that God had the power of these plagues, and God was cursing them rather than repenting and giving God's glory they continue to curse back at God you can't fight the fifth angel poured out his bowl in the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness people gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores and they did not repent of their deeds it's often the case of those who have gone astray that despite the discipline that God brings there's still a hardness of heart but here's this, this ramping up of, of this rebellion and this consequence to Israel. And it is just like disciplining our children. First, there's a verbal warning. Maybe you start counting. Maybe then um, you give um, a warning of discipline. And then you actually apply some discipline. And then you apply more discipline 
until the hard heart is, is made soft. And if the heart is soft, like in some of my children, just the verbal rebuke puts them to tears. And if your heart is hard, like some other of our children, you've got to go quite on down that line before you get any profitable response. Kids are different. And, and likewise here, what God is doing is just vamping up Vamping up the consequences of sin, vamping up his, his um, hatred towards that, his curses that come, desiring and hoping that repentance would eventually come. Well, we see the last round in verse 27, and this really exposed the hardness of Israel's heart. But if, in spite of all this, you will not listen to me, but walk contrary to me. And so you even see there that, that God is doing this to turn them back. But if in spite of all these things they continue that way, then, God says, I will walk contrary to you. Supposed to, when I will be with you, I will be your God, you shall be my people. He's going contrary. In fury, and I myself will discipline you seven times for your sin, sevenfold for your sin. You shall eat the flesh of your sons. You shall eat the flesh of your daughters. It's cannibalism. Just to survive. You can read 2 Kings chapter 6. This took place when Assyria surrounded the city. I think it was Jerusalem. And trying to starve them out. It wasn't Jerusalem. I forget what city it was. They're trying to starve them out. I think it was in Samaria. And in order to survive, they started eating their own. Exactly like was, was prophesied. Verse 30. And I will destroy your eye places and cut down your incense altars and cast your dead bodies upon the dead bodies of your idols and your soul um, and my soul will abhor you. The idols of the land destroyed. Many died. This, this came to pass. In verse 31, I will lay your cities waste and make your sanctuaries desolate and I will not smell your pleasing aromas. Talk about Jerusalem being made waste and the temple being made desolate. For the past couple of weeks, our fighter verses we've been memorizing, some of you have, is uh, Lamentations 3. It just speaks about how, how, how desolate are the streets that once were filled. How lonely stands Jerusalem because they've been decimated exactly according to what God said. Verse 32, And I myself will devastate the land. So that your enemies who settle in it shall be appalled at it. And then notice here, who's devastating the land? God is devastating the land. Such is his hatred towards sin of Israel. Yeah, it was the Babylonians, but God says, I'm the one that did it. He says further, verse 32, verse 33, And I will scatter you among the nations, and I will unsheath the sword after you, and your land shall be a desolation, your cities shall be a waste. That is exactly what happened. People scattered. That's the story of Daniel in Babylon. So Israel was scattered. Babylon, only a remnant remained, and many went into exile with Judah. Then, as we spoke last week, the land shall enjoy its Sabbaths as long as it lies desolate while you are in your enemy's land. Then the land shall rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. You remember we talked about that, the Sabbath year last week in chapter 25, when they were off and in Babylon, God says, you never kept my seventh year Sabbath, so I'm going to keep it for you. You're going to be desolate these 70 years. I'm going to get seven of my Sabbath years rest here to make up for at least 490 years. You can read about that at the end of Second Chronicles, chapter 36. It describes this whole thing. 
It says, as long as it lies desolate, it shall have rest. And the rest that it did not have on your Sabbaths when you were dwelling in it. You didn't keep this. And as for those who are left, I will send faintness into the hearts and the lands of their enemies. And the sound of a driven leaf shall put them to flight. They shall flee as one flees from the sword. They shall fall when none pursues. Falling when none pursues. They think someone's pursuing and they're running away and they trip and they fall and and there's nothing there. God's sending deluding influences among these people. They're they're nervous. They're, they're, They're paranoid. They shall stumble over one another as if to escape a sword. Though none pursues and you shall have no power to stand before your enemies. You shall perish among the nations and the land of your enemies shall eat you up and those of you who are left shall rot away in your enemies' lands because of their iniquity and because of their iniquities of the Father. They shall rot away like them. Now here, here's, what's, here's what's interesting, is that this is such an accurate description of what happened to Israel and Judah that some say oh, Leviticus 26 couldn't have been written by Moses. This had to have been written like after the exile because it describes it so carefully, so accurately. I'm just say, this is clearly written by Moses. There's no question about whether it was written by Moses. But they do that in testimony to how accurate this prophecy is or how accurate this result is. Everything that God threatened, he did to a T. And Israel was in ruin because they rebelled. And they were cursed. Some more and even more and much more. And I'd say by principle, that's what awaits any of you who, who want to go your path of sin. Oh, not exactly in the detail that Israel faced, but, but you go the path of sin and you'll find emptiness and you'll find sorrow and you'll find distress and you'll find hardship. Now, there are exceptions, right? Psalm 73, Asaph says, The wicked, they have no, no fear of you and they, they sit in their fatness. But in general, you'll face some difficult times. I'm just saying, for your good, seek the ways of God and obey Him. But all's not doom and gloom this morning. Okay, there, There's hope. This is my, my third point. If you obey, you'll be blessed. If you rebel, you'll be cursed. And if you repent, you'll be restored. Verse 40. But if, there's that word again, if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers in their treachery that they committed against me and also in walking contrary to me, so that I walked contrary to them and brought them into the land of their enemies. If then their uncircumcised heart is humbled and makes amends for iniquity, circle this one, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob. And going back, I'll remember my covenant with Isaac. And going back, I'll remember my covenant with Abraham. And part of that covenant is I will remember the land but the land shall be abandoned by them and enjoy its Sabbaths while it lies desolate without them. And they shall make amends for their iniquity because they spurned my rules and their soul abhorred my statutes. Yet for all that, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not spurn them. Right? When they're in Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar's court, I'm not going to spurn them. Neither will I abhor them so as to destroy them utterly and break my covenant with them. For I am the Lord their God 
But I will, for their sake, remember the covenant with their forefathers who I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations, that I might be their God. I am the Lord. These are the statutes and rules and laws that the Lord made between himself and the people of Israel through Moses on Mount Sinai. As if to clarify, this was Moses, right? This wasn't some late addition to the, to the Bible. Here's a promise of restoration. If Israel would simply confess her sin, what she has done, the wayward ways that she has gone, God would remember his covenant that he made with these people. He says, I will restore you, bring them back into the land. Now, when it comes to us, right, we need to understand this, right? We're not, we're not descended, we're not Jews, descended, the part of this promise, but the promise of Abraham, that you'll be a great blessing, comes to us through the Messiah. Galatians 3 speaks about how the gospel is preached to Abraham. It says, through you, Abraham, all the generations of the earth will be blessed. And through faith, we are children of Abraham. And so we, we can come in to some of the blessings of this covenant. But it comes to us like this, that, that if you're wayward in your sin, and then there's some sin that you're following, and you've been following it for years, and you say, God, I, I confess this, and I, I'm turning from that, and I'm turning to you. The promise of Scripture is that he will bring us in. He'll restore us, bring us into the new covenant. Reconciliation, restoration through Jesus Christ. This is the gospel, right? It's not that we're, all this obedience isn't earning anything and all this disobedience is earning our, our curses. But we're never righteous because of our works. We're righteous through Jesus. We're righteous how? If we confess our sins, 1 John 1, 9 says. And we're going to study this in a couple of months. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, right? You, you want to come to God, just confess your sins. Just say, I am a, I'm a sinner, God. I'm in need of grace. I, I, I've messed up, but Christ, I come to you. I, I, I'm not coming on my own merits. I'm coming, oh Lord, because this is who I am. I need great help. And it says that he will forgive us our sins. He will cleanse us of the unrighteousness because he'll take the righteousness of Christ and cleanse us in his blood. And that is the gospel, is it not? That Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous in order to bring us to God. It's by grace that we're saved through faith. And it's not of ourselves, the gift of God. Not through all the works that no one can boast, but see, God is the one who saves us because all of us, like sheep, have gone astray. We've turned to our own way, but God has poured on him the iniquity of us all. And we can turn, turn to Christ, and he's the one that salvation is only in his name. Repentance is the, the message of the New Testament, the message of the Old Testament, the message of Leviticus 26. Remember when Jesus came on the scene, he says, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. That means, right, turn from your ways and your sinful ways, O Israel, and turn to me. John the Baptist, same message. The apostles, same message. And they preached in Jerusalem. It says, repent and turn from your sin and follow me. And that's exactly what's happening here in verses 40 through 46. Repentance is described. When repentance comes, reconciliation and restoration comes in the blood of Jesus. Well, in some regards, this was a family meeting. In some regards, this is really setting up the big family meeting. Uh, if you remember, this, this chapter, by the way, Leviticus 26, is almost identical to Deuteronomy 27. 
in which he says, okay, when you come into the land, I want you to set up on the two mountains there in Samaria. And uh, there's Mount Gerizim. I think Mount Gerizim's on the south. And on the north, there's Mount Ebal. These kind of in a valley, these two mountains. And you shall put six tribes up on this mountain and six tribes up on this mountain. And on this mount, Mount Gerizim, you proclaim all the blessings that will be there if you obey. And here on Mount Ebal, you proclaim all the curses in big, loud voice. All of you obey. So you understand clearly what your expectation is. That's the family meeting that God said in Deuteronomy 27 to have. In Joshua 8, when they came and took the land... That was the family meeting that they had. There was no claim of ignorance that any of the children of Israel could claim. So I didn't know you were going to do that. No, it was clear. Remember a family meeting? And so likewise, when a bed is not made, we can go back and say, Hey, do you remember the family meeting we had? We talked about making your bed. That normally works at our house. Just kind of doing that with your face, just kind of saying... But this is the family meeting that was was taking place. And God was saying, Obey, and my blessing will be upon you. You disobey, you're going to be cursed. And, and if you go in your disobedience, repent. And in fact, isn't this the message of the Bible? Isn't it always? Throughout the whole Bible, right? Those who walk with God know the blessings of God. Those who hate God get His wrath. And there's always room for repentance. Bring someone to God. So let's pray together. Oh, Father, I I pray that you would take these words, sink them deep into our hearts. Help us to know your grace. God, I pray for the soul that needs to repent today. I pray that, that you would draw that soul, open eyes, open ears. God, bring repentance about. Help us all, oh God, to be holy people that don't walk in the way that Israel walked. God, don't walk in the ways that many churches walk. Mainline denominations seem to be going that way. Churches, the older they get, tend to go that way. Compromise, compromise, compromise. And Father, so may we may we stand on the truth, O oh God. Be our help and be our shield. We thank you, O oh God, for your grace that's in Jesus Christ. And we do pray in his wonderful, all-forgiving name. Amen.